The Finding Holy podcast is where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between the things that really matter and your everyday holy life. And you'll get to hear everyone's laundry routines. To listen to the Finding Holy podcast, go to aahales.com slash podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. No soul can receive this deep, divine, and overflowing life and still live for himself. No church can be baptized into this supernatural life and ever again be selfish, small-minded, or earthbound. Every episode we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today's message comes to us by Albert Benjamin Simpson. It was delivered in 1899 at the end of the Knack Convention. Joel, A.B. Simpson was not someone I was really familiar with before this episode, uh, but I really like this sermon, Aggressive Christianity. There's this idea almost that Christianity is to always be submissive and weak, and we're not to rock the boat too much. We kind of just go along to get along. But Simpson was saying, as Christians, we need to be bold and we need to go everywhere. If you've heard our sermons from Hudson Taylor, you'll find this one kind of has a similar passion and desire to, to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth. And you will find that whenever I find sermons like that, I really teach the plight of the lost. I always try to get them in our show. Um, in my mind, no other message, old or new, is as important as a call to go and preach the gospel to the lost and really remember the fact that there are people who are dying who have never heard. Yeah, A.B. Simpson. He was born in 1843 in Canada, and I, he, he's actually our first Canada speaker on Revive Thoughts. And I'm actually kind of surprised it took us this long to come across a Canadian mm-hmm. yeah, speaker I, I to hear do a that Canadian actually. episode. He comes from a pretty respected family. One of his descendants would actually write the Anne of Green Gables books. On his mother's side of the family, they founded Cavendish, which is an area there in Canada. So his family is doing better than others in this era, definitely for sure. His mother had prayed to God that God give a missionary or a minister while she was pregnant with him. And it's kind of interesting because it's around the same time that Hudson Taylor is born as well. And Hudson Taylor's mother also has a similar prayer that we see documented, which raises kind of an interesting question. I mean, many of us probably would say we'd be fine, even happy, if our children grew up and went into ministry, but how many of us would be willing to pray that, or, or even beg, you know, that these moms seem to do, begging God to give them a child whose purpose was to solely tell people about God only, like, you don't want him to go into any other occupation. It's very different. It's kind of, I think, yeah. telling of that generation more so in contrast to ours. Well, and you think about it, too, I mean... I would say the late 1800s, that little area became one of the biggest missionary boon. Sure. The gospel got out further than everybody, but you, I can't say for sure, but I almost wonder if you can trace it back to these moms who were each one was saying, I don't want my kid to grow up just to be happy. I want them to go out and be missionaries to right. the lost. So just something I've noticed, I think it's impressive. And I think we should ask ourselves if we could do that. When he was young, he was baptized by John Getty, the pastor over his family, Uh, at the time, and one of Canada's first foreign missionaries. When he baptized him, he dedicated him for mission work. So again, this is kind of going a trend here. But all was not good for this family. Um, His dad had been a small business owner. He was uh, building ships, but when the economy tanked in their area, um, they lost a job. He had to move to a lonely farm far away from the town where they wanted to be. Uh, During around that same time, his mother lost a child and just went through severe depression. And uh, A.B. Simpson said some of his earliest memories were of him 
um, just trying to hug and comfort his mom as she wept in her room, just trying to reassure her. And he said that he felt this led to some deep anxiety in his own life. Um, he would struggle deeply with whether or not he was one of the elect. Uh, he believed deeply in eternal damnation, and the thought of being you know, in hell forever haunted him. And so and it really became real to him in his teenage years. He went for a swim one day and he almost drowned. And, the, and, he, and, the, and when they recovered him, he, he felt this fear just terrify him so much in his brain. If I had died, where would I have gone? Simpson is a very interesting person. And you can tell he's, he's a very disturbed person. Mm-hmm. And I, I definitely think there was some of that before this next story I'm about to tell. But this next story definitely scarred him as a child for Mm. sure it's kind of sad it's also maybe kind of telling of that preaching style in that time maybe maybe wasn't the healthiest for everyone it didn't always go in the way you wanted it right because the av simpson goes to a a tent revival a preacher that's going on there and there's this evangelist an irish evangelist that is preaching at this tent revival and he's preaching this apocalyptic intense sermon talking about death and eternity and it was so intense that it really disturbed A.B. Simpson significantly. And as he's walking home from this tent revival, again, these are some some circumstances that are going to compile on each other and just make for a real bad outcome. But he was he was so disturbed and so conflicted listening to the sermon that he gets lost on the way home walking through the forest and he ends up stumbling across an Indian burial, burial ground. And he stumbles across some some bodies that were buried that, I don't know if grave diggers were, were uh, digging them up or if they had just come loose from the ground, but stumbling across these rotting corpses looking back at you, straight out of a horror movie, absolutely terrifying to think of. And that combined with the sermon from earlier that night, all of these thoughts of death that he had just heard, uh, it really affected him. His dad thankfully found him out in the woods and brought him home, but that scarring <laughs> didn't yeah. didn't go away. He had a, a pretty severe mental breakdown. Doctors saw him and and confirmed that hey, he's having a mental breakdown here. He's very ill. Uh, he was told he can't read books for over a year just because his nervous system was just too frail. He had this recurring fear where there was a specific hour that he was certain that he was going to die. He was he was expecting to die and when that hour drew near, he would just wait for it to take him, wait for death to to take him and after it passed and he lived, he was genuinely shocked every time. He he couldn't fathom. He couldn't understand why he was still alive. He had no idea why he was still alive. And this would happen time and time again. So, it's it's a real sad look at just he he had a scarred childhood and again i'm not quite sure of this how much of this was from this experience mm-hmm. how much of this maybe some of it was you know genetically predisposed beforehand we're not quite sure but it would trouble him from time to time throughout his life not only this specific concept but other he was just mentally sensitive and unstable at times Simpson would struggle with this for the for this and breakdowns for the rest of his life like Joel was saying and and depression and nervous breakdowns are um not just specific to Simpson. If you've listened to our episode on Charles Spurgeon, A Call to the Depressed, he talks, we talk a little bit, do an interview in that episode, and we, we hear about how, you know, the Prince of Preachers really struggled with this. Uh, Oswald Chambers had a had a breakdown for a few years, too. Like this, uh, Hudson Taylor, at the end of his life, he actually had one as well. This is not just something A.B. Simpson went with. This is not just something people today. It's just something that happens sometimes. 
eventually he read a book on uh, the mystery of God. And, and, and there was a line in there that basically said, once you accept Christ, you're good. Like it's, you're, you can't get out of his hands from that point on. Uh, Simpson clung to that promise. And over time, he kind of recovered from the sense that he said it was that promise of like, I'm done. I know God has me. I feel safe now. Um, he later on said that his family had raised him in a home at a very, and he blamed the Calvinistic Presbyterian home, but he said that the, the home had no humor, no fun, no play, just a grave danger of death and hell hung over it. And this made it difficult for him. But when he, when he started to believe in that promise that God had done it all, he felt this joy in the simple pleasure of living and loving Christ and the gospel. And when that joy was coming into his life, he said, just like a breath of fresh air to his soul. Yeah, he'd end up going to college, and he did very well there. He was sent to a Presbyterian elders in London to see if he would make a good candidate, and they sent him back to Ontario for training, seeing a lot of potential in him. He ended up going to the Knox Presbyterian Church, the second largest Presbyterian church in Canada, and he worked very hard to grow that church, grow that congregation, almost by another thousand members after he came, but he tired himself out. It took a lot of work, a lot of mental dedication. His nerves went through kind of another breakdown from all of the hard work he was working on. Around this same time, John Giddy, that pastor, that famous missionary that baptized him, called on his mother, and he asked his mother, where's that, where's that boy that I dedicated to missions? And his mother told him that he's a preacher at a church, and so this minister tracked him down where he was at, at that church, and encouraged him not to forget his work of missions, which I think is pretty neat. Like, yeah. the, the idea of that that missionary remembering that dedication, and however many years later, just checking in to make sure that, you know, this is this is what you were called to type of thing. No, 21 years later after all, I'm sure the changes he went through on the missionary field, but when he comes back, he's like, where's that mom and that boy? I need to make sure that he's fulfilling the calling I dedicated to him to. And that's, and then he hears that he's a preacher and he goes, no, no, I got to go make sure you're still doing more. I, I thought that was really cool. Yeah. Uh, A.B. Simpson did a lot of stuff from this point, by the way. He would eventually move to New York City after spending some time in Louisville, Kentucky, um, due to this idea that New York City, he had this specific vision that New York City was seeing tons of immigrants come to it during this time. And so he said, this is the perfect place to catch people from around the world with the gospel. He was kind of one of those first people to see that a city could become a great missionary zone because of all the different people from all the different ethnicities around the world would be there, and then they could take it back to their family. So he, it, that's a very popular idea now. But Simpson was one of the first people to truly see it and kind of capitalize on it. He eventually founded a few organizations that would become famous and still are around today. The most famous of which is the Christian and Missionary Alliance, which was not originally set up to be a denomination, but over time it kind of went in that direction. Uh, this denomination grew to be quite large and is still around today. And also Simpson would write a lot of hymns. Um, A.W. Tozer, who would kind of become his official biographer, said some of these songs are pretty terrible and they're not really singable, but... The one uh, you've probably heard and may still be familiar with today is uh, Jesus Loves the Little Children. I sang it. Did you sing it? I definitely sang it, yeah. Oh, yeah. His life, unfortunately, did have a, a lot of difficulties. His constant emotional turmoil led him to a lot of mysticism. He would be kind of instrumental in some of the groundwork for the Pentecostal movement. He also had a really rough relationship with his wife, unfortunately. The constant obsessions and breakdowns led her and him to some dark places sometimes. 
At one point, he declared that it's God's will for him to go to China, and his wife responds, in no uncertain terms, I will not go to China with this lunatic. So it's kind of telling of it's some rough times. Might make you feel better, too, if you ever have a rough fight with your wife. Well, you know, some of the, some of the great preachers of history have been there with yeah. you. Yeah, that's, that's true as well. But despite all of maybe the problems and difficulties, he was, if there's definitely one thing you can say about him, he was singularly focused on getting more people to know about Jesus Christ. He felt that the world had to follow Christ and that there were too many people who did not know the Lord. It was almost like the same passionate struggle you saw with him worrying about his own uh lack of salvation he then realized all these other people didn't know christ and then that just fueled him for the rest of his life and we've got to get that message to all these people who just don't realize they're in trouble um in this sermon you can hear his ideas behind that and this this concept of we need to be aggressive in our christianity we need to do everything we can to get the word out to those who won't hear it Having hoped that, when your faith is increased, we will be enlarged by you according to our rule abundantly, to preach the gospel in the regions beyond you, and not to boast in another man's line of things made ready to our hand. 2 Corinthians 10, 15-16 If I was asked to state the distinctive principles of the work of the Christian and Missionary Alliance— of which this convention is a crystallized expression. There are two things that I would say. First, it stands for an absolute faith in supernatural things and a supernatural God. It represents a Christianity which is out and out for God, and it gathers to it those and only those who believe something and believe it with all their heart and soul and strength. In a word... It represents intense spiritual earnestness. And secondly, along with this, as the outgo and overflow of this deeper life of faith and consecration, it represents intense aggressiveness in its work for God. An overflow and an outgo that is ever reaching on to the regions beyond and seeking to pass on to others the blessings we ourselves have received. The Alliance movement, therefore, represents spiritual earnestness on the one hand and aggressive activity on the other. These are the two thoughts expressed in our text, somewhat obscurely, perhaps, at first sight, but plainly enough when we look more carefully at the structure and the language of the passage. The Apostle, first, speaks of their faith and his own growth through fellowship with them. And then the outcome of all this, leading him forward to new aggressive work in regions where others have never gone, neglected fields which others have not reached. Let us glance briefly at these two distinctive features of Christian work, and I trust we may speak without egotism of this work. 1. A deeper and larger faith. Having hope that when your faith is increased, we will be enlarged by you. 
The apostle was longing for a deeper and stronger faith, both on their part and his own. This must ever be the spring of earnest and aggressive work. We cannot give others more than we ourselves have received. The water can rise no higher than the spring. All missionary enterprise must have its source in a deeper spiritual life. For this reason, God has been deepening the life of His people during these waiting days. For this reason, God has been developing a more earnest consecration and a more earnest devotedness to Christ in the hearts of His people during these years. It is this that stimulates your generous gifts and your noble sacrifices. It's because you believe in God and in His Word without reserve and have not been afraid to put all the weight of your need and your eternal future upon it. And you have found in it a satisfying joy. It is because of this that everything else is cheap in comparison and everything else has ceased to hurt. God has given us a Christ that is real, a comforter that fills the heart, a love that lifts us above ourselves, a joy that abounds even through deep poverty for the riches of your generosity, a whole gospel for the whole man, for spirit, soul, and body. And it is only the logical sequence that it should also be for the whole world. 2. The result of this unselfish and aggressive work. No soul can receive this deep, divine, and overflowing life and still live for himself. No church can be baptized into this supernatural life and this Christ-like spirit and ever again be selfish, small-minded, or earthbound. It makes the world our church and irresistibly flows out like water to the deepest places of need. This we trust, and we may say without immodesty or extravagance at least, is the aim of the Alliance Movement. The greatest blessing of our work is the precious gospel the Spirit has revealed, and the living Christ, who is its center and substance. And we have the privilege of sharing it with the world, It has lifted our work to a higher plane than even the deepest spiritual teaching could ever have given it. It has given opportunity for the development of the highest qualities, both of faith, love, sacrifice, and service. And it is not too much to say that it has brought about for us far greater blessings than we have been able to give to others. Building far better than we knew, God led us from the beginning to lay a foundation broad enough to reach the whole circumference of the world in the scope of our purpose and our blessing. The missionary idea had given not only expansion, but height and depth to the whole spirit of the movement. It is a law of the commercial world that the balance of trade must be maintained and that the exports and imports of a country must have a due proportion. If we did nothing but receive goods from other lands, we would soon become a bankrupt people. It is the export of our produce and manufactures that bring us the treasures of the world and enriches our merchants and our people. It's the same in the natural world. 
the body of water that only receives the inflow of its tributaries and has no outlet from which to get rid of its overflow will become a stagnant swamp or dead sea. And so the life that focuses only upon itself is an anomaly foreign to the very nature of things and contrary to the law of its own existence. The Christian that is bound by his own horizon, the church that lives simply for itself, is bound to die a spiritual death and sink into stagnancy and corruption. We can never thank God enough for giving us not only a whole gospel to believe, but a whole world to give it to. Let us look a little more at this great ideal of aggressive Christianity and see how it is essential to the whole system of divine religion. First, it is the spirit of the Master. It brought him to Bethlehem and Calvary, and it governed all his earthly ministry. How touching is the picture of one of the first days in his earthly work. The previous Sabbath had been spent in wonders of his grace and power, and when the next day dawned, the multitudes thronged around him, and Peter came eagerly, saying, All men seek you. Peter was delighted with the success of his master's ministry. He was proud to be around him and know that he was the center of every thought and heart. But he could not find his Lord at first. And when he did discover him, he was away in a place of retirement where he had gone a great while before it was day to wait upon his father in earnest prayer. And when he found him, the master was not at all delighted or elated by the crowds, but turning his back upon his sudden popularity, he set his face to new fields and answered, I must go into the towns that I may preach there also, for from there I came, and he preached in their synagogues throughout all Galilee. Again and again, with weary feet and unwearied love, the blessed master traveled over the 900 cities of Galilee until all its teeming millions had heard the gospel from his lips. How beautiful is that little verse in the fourth chapter of John. He must go through all Samaria. It was not because the road to Galilee led through Samaria, but it was because a poor weary soul was there at Jacob's well and all her countrymen in the city of Sychar, outcasts from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, for whose souls there was no one else to care. How graphic is the irony with which his very enemies described his love of souls when the, they cried in reproach, This man lies in wait for sinners and eats with them. And when he had traveled through all his own land of Israel, he reached beyond, all the way to Syrophoenicia, to the poor sinful people of Jezebel and to the country of Perea, through the very malefactor that hung beside him in his dying agony. His love was always reaching out to regions beyond. And if the spirit of the master is in us, we will be reaching too. Second, this was the spirit of the Great Commission. For when he went away, he left his will in the form of his last commands. 
And what were these? They may be summed up in three special commissions. First, a commission to the nations acts actual nations in the closing verses of the Gospel of Matthew. Go ye therefore and disciple all nations. He sent them out as ambassadors from the king of kings to the kings of this world. He repudiated at once the idea of the gospel being intended for any single nation or people, certainly not the people of Israel, and just as certainly not the Anglo-Saxon people. The commission was worldwide, and it will never be fulfilled until every people, tribe, and tongue of the human family has received the gospel in such form that its people can understand the message of salvation. It will not suffice if all the sinners of the United States were saved, if there was yet a single tribe that had not heard of Christ. The commission would not be fulfilled. We cannot emphasize this too much, this national phase of the Great Commission, and until it is obeyed, we do not see how we can consistently expect the Master's coming. Yet there is the individual commission. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. This sends us man by man to each individual and bids us give every human being a chance for his life. Then, finally, there is the last words of the commission in its most aggressive form, given by the Lord from the slope of Olivet just before his ascension. You will receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you will be witness for me. And notice the expansive character of the command in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. So the ever-widening circle extends until it takes in the whole circumference of the world. Short of this, Christian enterprises dare not pause, or it will miss the promise of the Holy Ghost and the approval of the Master. Third, this was the spirit of the early church. They were slow to catch the Master's thought, but they gradually understood it and fulfilled it. And so it was not long until the gospel had spread to Samaria, and then Philip was pressed out by the Holy Ghost to meet in the desert the Ethiopian eunuch and send him back to his own continent, a pioneer of the glorious gospel, and perhaps one of the founders of those mighty churches we afterward find in northern Africa to this day. Then Peter was taken up on the housetop and prepared by a heavenly vision for the wider ministry that awaits him the next day in the house of Cornelius, the Roman centurion. Next, the church in Antioch is formed with its larger brotherhood and its freer atmosphere of spiritual fellowship and worldwide evangelism. And then Saul is raised up and prepared for his peculiar ministry as the apostle of the Gentiles, and in due time is sent out on his worldwide evangel, until he too is able to say, So that from Jerusalem and all the way to Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Yes, I have striven to preach the gospel, not where Christ was named, unless I should build on another man's foundation. But, as it is written, 
to whom he was not spoken of, they will see. And they that have not heard will understand. The one ambition of his life was to preach the gospel in the regions beyond. And in the passage already quoted in the 15th chapter of Romans, there was a fine sarcasm in one of his sentences where he tells them that much as he desired to visit them at Rome and enjoy their spiritual fellowship, yet he had not even thought of coming to them until he could say, I have no more place in these parts. There was really nothing left to do among the heathen, and so he was free to go to Rome. But even in going there, it was but incidental to a more distant journey into Spain. And it was partly for the purpose of their helping him in his missionary journey. And so he says, But now, having no more place in these parts, and having a great desire these many years to come to you, whenever I take my journey into Spain, I will come to you. For I trust to see you in my journey, or to be brought on my way forward by you, if first I am somewhat filled with your company. This is the true spirit of Christian love. It is the native instinct of the heaven-born soul. The supreme law of the universe is love. And the essence of love is to think of others, and especially the most needy and helpless ones. There's another man, was the stammering cry of the shipwrecked sailor as they roused him into consciousness and bore him from the raft on which he was floating. His first thought was of the comrade that he had left dying behind him. And as long as there's another man in any corner of this dark world who is sinking in the night under his awful load of guilt and with a desperate sense of helplessness, let no man dare to call himself the disciple of Jesus who does not care or presume to answer back to the challenge. Am I my brother's keeper? Aggressive Christianity is the world's greatest need. Will I try to make you understand the awful condition of the majority of our fellow human beings in heathen lands? Can you take in the idea that a thousand millions without the gospel? Suppose we were to bring them into this tabernacle, a thousand at a time, three times a day, every day in the week, and every week in the year, and so have three thousand souls every day hear the story of salvation. How long do you suppose it would take the whole congregation of the Christless world to pass before us and have one sermon preached to them about the love of Jesus? It would take just one thousand years. And in the thousand years, there would be thirty generations more just like them left to perish. How many of them have died since this convention began? A population as vast as Brooklyn, as Philadelphia. A million souls perished without Christ. How many of them will pass away before we meet again at Nyack a year from now? Let me give you a picture of graves. Let us bury them side by side all across the continent and allow one yard for each grave. The row of graves would reach from New York to San Francisco and back again 
twice over. And all of these have perished without Jesus. Oh, as they pass into this, his presence in their darkness and sorrow and learn for the first time that he died to save them, what must they think of us? What must he think of us if we never feel their need and never make a sacrifice to save them? The United States gave 100,000 soldiers to emancipate this little island of Cuba from oppression. If we should give 100,000 missionaries, it would mean one missionary for every 10,000 of the human race. And with that army of workers, the entire world could be evangelized in 10 years. What about the tools that such a movement would require? It would take just $50 million, one quarter of the amount the United States spent in a single year on the Cuban War, and a mere trifle for the Christian world to give for the evangelization of the heathen. We are told by intelligent authorities that the actual increase in wealth of the Christian people of the United States as represented by the amount that they add to their savings bank deposits, is $500 million. Now, they could give all this without lessening their wealth by merely contributing the annual surplus. But if they gave but a tenth of this, it would be 50 millions of dollars annually from the United States alone, and it would be sufficient to support an army of 100,000 missionaries, or one to every 10,000 of the human race. When we look at such figures, how can our hearts help but being filled with the deepest shame and wonder at the selfishness of Christians and the long-suffering of God? Time will not permit me to tell you of the neglected fields of this lost world. I might speak of 3,000 languages and dialects of earth, of which more than 2,000 still remain without a translation of the scriptures, or a gospel messenger to tell them of Christ. I may speak of the interior provinces of China, with perhaps one missionary to a half million souls, of places like Mongolia and Tibet, which have just been touched with their first rays of light, of Turkestan and Annam, without a single missionary, of the Philippine Islands just opening their gates to the gospel, of hundreds of tribes in Central Africa that never heard of Jesus, of five million Indians in South America that are still in the night of paganism, and of many of the republics of South America that have but two or three lone messengers just beginning to cut their way through the dense darkness. But space and time forbid. God is calling. The Spirit is pointing The Macedonian cry is pleading for the nations beyond. Oh, who will go? And who will help to send? The Missionary Institute, for which today we are to contribute our loving gifts, is a training school for missionaries for these regions beyond. The men and women whom we train and send are themselves outside the ordinary range of the gospel ministry, and belong, in a sense, to these regions beyond. Like the brave Rough Riders and volunteers who helped to win the cause of Cuban freedom, they are the brave volunteers and irregulars in the army of Christ and of missions. 
and they go forth to regions where others have not ventured, and fields where others have not scattered the precious seed. If there is a hard place, if there is a lonely spot, if there is a neglected soul, that is the place that is the work for which these brave hearts are first to volunteer. But what right have they to sacrifice and serve at such cost while we stand back in selfish indolence and apathy? No, let both ranks of the army of the Lord advance alike and keep step together, the workers at home and the workers abroad, in the same glorious enterprise of sacrifice and service for a crucified Lord and a lost world. In conclusion, the spirit of aggressiveness is the spirit of our age. The great message of God's providence to our people today is the expansion of heaven's borders, the hand of God, and the victories of our brave witnesses have spread his loving kingdom to new realms and new peoples. Let us not forget that these millions are not only our fellow citizens, but our fellow sinners too. Will we be true to the trust that God has so gloriously bestowed? Will we give them merely the earthly symbol of freedom, or will we give them the glorious liberty of the children of God and the Magna Carta of the Gospel of Christ? If the glory of Christ's cross has transfigured you and me as he died to make them holy, let us live and make them free while God is marching on. More than anything, he has this quote. I, it, there's lots of them in the sermon, but I think the one that I really wanted to just kind of repeat and think about was, uh, what must they think of us? What must he, God, think of us if we never feel a need to sacrifice something to tell them about Christ? You know, too often I think we go, oh, if I tell somebody about Jesus, I'm going to be awkward, could hurt the relationship, all these different things um, that can be lost or damaged or hurt or wounded or whatever. Which, of course, I think we need to remember that if we're telling people about God, I mean, the Holy Spirit should be right there with us, helping us and aiding us. But also, too, you know, what are they thinking of us? And what is God thinking of you when you're worried about giving up a little sacrifice or something? Or I don't know if I should move and do all that because I I might give something up. And we have to remember these people have to hear the gospel. And A.B. Simpson reminds us that, you know, there is really nothing more important in this life than making sure that the gospel gets to those who need to hear it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's episode was narrated by Thomas Middlebrook. Thomas finished his PhD at Trinity in 2019. He served as a pastoral fellow and is a shepherd at Life on the Vine Christian Community. He is married and has two kids and also serves as an adjunct professor of Old Testament at Trinity International University. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Revive Thoughts. If you enjoyed this episode and you thought it was something that was worth your time, we highly encourage you to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or any uh, podcast player that you listen to. Uh, those uh, reviews and, and stars help 
show others that our show is something to listen to and may have some content they can enjoy, but it also helps show Apple's algorithms and those things that this show is uh, doing well and it encourages them to put our show out there in other people's feeds. And it's all one way of helping us grow. And also when we see those reviews come in, we like to share them, show people, hey, this is what's going on in the lives of others. So we really love it when you tell us how this show is uh, personally encourage you on a spiritual level. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. I hope you enjoyed that podcast, and if you did, I'd like to also invite you over to the Finding Holy podcast, where Ashley Hales sits down with authors, pastors, activists, and artists to help you connect the dots between things that really matter in issues of faith and your everyday holy life. You'll even get to hear about the laundry routines. Go to aahales.com slash podcast or listen to the Finding Holy podcast wherever you choose to listen to your shows.